Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. In this week's podcast, a young woman joins a boxing club in Kalispell, Montana. Tragedy strikes the Lolo Hotshot crew. A man in desperate need of a kidney receives that gift. And a young deaf woman navigates the dating scene in her 20s. Tell Us Something is a podcast celebrating the stories of our community. Thanks for joining us. Our podcast today was recorded in front of a live audience on December 11th, 2018 at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. Eight storytellers shared their true personal story on the theme, Did That Really Happen? Today we hear from four of those storytellers. Our first story comes to us from Mignon Hess, who is a boxer in Kalispell, Montana, when a horrific storm destroys the boxing club where she used to box. She calls her story, Boxing in the Floodplains. Thanks for listening. For Christmas, when I was five years old and my brothers were 10 and 11, my mom was a single parent and uh, some kind relative of ours thought the best Christmas present for us to entertain us after school was a set of boxing gloves. So, so we would come home after school and we'd practice, we practiced a lot. That's how I lost my first couple teeth. and. So before that, I was Muhammad Ali, but after that, I was Leon Spinks. Um, Flash forward 20 years, through a lot of sports and a lot of very aggressive sports. That was kind of my thing. I just loved boxing. I mean, that was the start of it. I just loved it all throughout that, but I played a bunch of other stuff. 20 years later, I'm in Kalispell, Montana in the mid-90s, and there wasn't a lot going on for someone like me, want to play soccer or basketball, whatever. But it's a rough and tumble place, and it just occurred to me that this was the time. So um, through multiple channels, I found a phone number, which was supposed to be a boxing club. I called the number, and luckily enough, it was the clubhouse. And the guy, the trainer, Bill, he said, gave me the directions, and so I drove there. And if you know Kalispell at all, it's... uh, it's flat. The Flathead River runs through there and it's really flat and uh, there's a lot of floodplains in Kalispell and this boxing club, it was a shack and it was in a floodplain. I mean, nobody legally should have been able to probably even drive through there, but it was, it was built there. So I think probably many years earlier, a bunch of guys went to the backs of their garages and found whatever was left over and built this shack. And so I showed up on a sunny day and walked in the door and it was dark. I think there may have been a light on, but it was like a dirt floor, like tar paper walls, but it was legit. And there were like heavy bags hanging from the ceiling and, and uh, speed bags and there was an, actually a ring. And Bill, the trainer, he, he was very serious about this. Like, you know, was, was I gonna commit to the club? Yes, I was definitely gonna commit to the club well, you have to sign up for this program. I'm like, this sounds like Amway. What? It was USA Boxing. <laughs> He's like, there's a fee. I'm like, oh, the training fee. Okay, what's it going to be? $25. Okay, yes, I paid $25. And then I was a member of the club, and it was like this moment of like glorious reckoning. I was finally there. I was in a boxing club. And so the other members of the boxing club started to trickle in. There was five guys that showed up that day between the ages of eight and 12. And um, so 
so he got my hands all wrapped up. The warm-up was to run down to the end of this road, the road that led to the boxing club, and the marker where I had to turn around was a um, rusted-out car. So it was about a quarter mile. So I'm pumped. I'm like, I'm going to show everybody, like, this is my sport. I was going to work as hard as I could. And so we run down to the end. And I wanted to beat all these kids, like, you know, there was an eight-year-old. So I was going to beat them all, running as fast as I could. So I get to the rusted-out car. The whole way there, those guys are, like, punching each other. They're, like, rolling around, one spitting constantly. And as I get to the car and turn around, I'm like, I'm going to beat them back, and I'm going to show all these kids, like, how hard I'm going to train. They see me turn around, and they turn around. <laughs> and so they have, like, 200 yards to run back, and I've got a quarter mile. And... They beat me easily, and I'm getting to the club and panting and dying, and they're like, yeah, that was easy, that's fine. So that's kind of how it is for the next couple months. So this started in June, and so through August, we train every Tuesdays and Thursdays, and the, one of the main things you do is uh, heavy bag work, and it's like 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, and the trainer, Bill, is really into teaching me technique, and you know, I'm getting my jab down, you do twist, and then you twist your hand when you punch, and you do cross and the hook, so you get these combos, he tells you what you're going to do, for 30 seconds you punch a heavy bag as hard as you can, and it's exhausting, and it's like the best workout I've ever done, you know, you, you got to station your body just right, and twist, and, and it's it's a really good workout. So I'm doing this really good workout, and every time he blows a whistle, he's watching me and directing me, and those, my, you know, my club mates, those boys are kind of like, are they doing this? And they're like wrestling and pushing the bag so it looks like they're punching, but they're not. And it's, I mean, they're character, they're, they're totally characters. Like, it doesn't bother me too much because I'm still like the, the role model and they're, right, you know, I'm a 25-year-old woman, but whatever, so. <laughs> So we go on this way for the rest of the summer. So the culmination of the boxing summer is the uh, big smoker that's down in Hamilton. And um, it's actually the trial for the Junior Olympics. So the western part of Montana all goes to Hamilton, to the Eagles Club. And um, the, the saddest part for me was that they couldn't find another girl for me to fight. So it was a lot of training, but... Along the way, like, I got to know each of those boys. We got to spar a little bit. Like, not really, because they're eight. And um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what, which way would have been unfair. But anyway, so I really wanted to go. I wanted to support them. I wanted to, like, I wanted to be a part of this club for a good long time. I was eventually going to get a bout, but at that time I didn't. So I made the three-and-a-half-hour drive down to Hamilton. It was in the Eagles Club, which, if you've been in there, it's... It's like a giant cafeteria, it's tile and, and folding chairs and smells like, you know, potato salad. And so they actually set up like a big Junior Olympic ring. The boys are there with their families. I get to meet all their moms and dads. It felt really special. Like I knew each one of them and their parents knew me because I was the weird girl at the boxing club. And, um, you know, the, the first bout was the oldest kid. He's 12. He's super skinny, redhead with like extra dangly arms and freckles look like dirt. And he was like, I was nervous. I was like, thinking back, I'm still nervous for them because they weren't, you know, they weren't your classic looking boxing type. They didn't really play the part when we trained. So the first kid gets up there and he kicked ass. Like, it was amazing. And then, you know, ex, the next kid, the next kid, they all did amazingly well. They, they bled out their nose and they got knocked down and they all, like, almost all of them cried, but they all won. And I was crying. 
And so it was really exciting. I was cheering with their parents and unfortunately there was this big storm coming up from the south and I had a shitty old truck with really bad windshield wipers so I had to drive back up to Kalispell. There was no way I could drive through the storm. So I left before, the, before I found out how they all eventually did because there was you know, subsequent matches. And so I'm racing up with this huge black cloud following me which I beat, luckily, or else I would have drowned. And then I get to Kalispell. It, it's torrential rains for like three straight days. The river, you know, like fills up and fills the valley. And the boxing club, the bridge to get to it is, I don't know, it may have been handmade as well. But it was definitely underwater. So, you know, it's not like I can go online and be like, is the club open today? So I would drive to the bridge and there'd be a, a barricade and it's not open yet. So that was Tuesday. So the next Thursday, I'm like, drive to the club. Nope, still a barricade. So I think it was Tuesday, Thursday, Tuesday, and then another Thursday, the, the barricade was finally pulled apart. And so I'm driving down this windy road. I get over the bridge, which was still there, to the field where the club was, and there was nothing. It was completely gone. Uh, the patch of dirt where it was, it, it seemed like grass had grown up where that was. There had been a light pole. I don't think they ever used a light, but that was gone. I couldn't even see the rusted out car. I knew Bill. That was all. That was his name. I didn't know his last name. I didn't know any of the other kids' last names. And that was the end. Mignon Hess is a 46-year-old retired engineer. She enjoys House Hunters International, hockey, and Biga Pizza. She loves Missoula's roundabouts and wishes she was two inches taller. Sean Fela's hotshot crew is on a fire in Nevada when every firefighter's worst nightmare happens. Sean calls his story Lolo Hotshot Justin Beebe and the story of August 13th, 2016. Thanks for listening. November 16th of 2015 started off like any other day. Um, but it didn't end that way. It was the hiring season for the Lolo Hotshots, and so our office was filled with phone calls and interviews and emails and such of candidates that wanted to come work for us. That morning, a young man walked in my office. His name was Justin Beebe, and he wanted to be a Lolo Hotshot. So for about 30 minutes or so, we talk about what it's like to be a hotshot. I ask him questions about his experience, where he's been, what he's done, kind of what he stands for. And so he, you know, he tells me, and I talk about being a hotshot, what it's like, you know, spending 16-hour days on a shift, 14 days in a row, coming home for two, being away from your family, then going back out again and doing that over the course of the summer. I talk about the dangers of the job, what it's like, the physicality and such, and we have a good conversation. Uh, Justin tells me about his experience, and he's got good fire experience. He's worked with chainsaws. He tells me about his life growing up playing sports. Uh, he's an avid hockey and baseball and soccer player, and he really likes team environments, and he kind of thrives in that setting. He talks about his home. He's from Vermont, and he talks about this little 100-acre parcel of land that they call camp. And in that parcel of land, him and his family, every winter, they tap a thousand maple trees and they make syrup. The conversation's going well. He looks the part, he's got a nice beard, he's got a good handshake. <laughs> he looks me in the eyes and 
I feel pretty good about him. So after about 30 minutes or so, we're sitting there, and I'm sitting there, and he's sitting there. I'm kind of done, and he's not. He's got something else to share, and so out of his pocket, he pulls out a little can of maple syrup. He sets it on my desk, and he basically says, hey, Sean, here's the deal. I've been traveling around talking to hotshot crews. Not all of them want to say what, the, what we do and such, but for those that take the time to talk to me, I've been giving them this can of maple syrup. And in that moment, things changed. He showed me that he was generous and authentic, and he had character. And I took that to heart, because to me, that's the most, or one of the most important characteristics of being a good firefighter. So three months later, I hire him. I call him on the phone, and he's super stoked. He's going to be a hotshot. It's what he's always wanted to do. He wanted to work on a hotshot crew, and he wanted to work on a SAW team. Three months later, we start the fire season. He shows up in Missoula along with the other hotshots. And for about two weeks or so, we go through what's called critical training. We learn how to talk to each other on the radio, how to operate chainsaws, how to put in fire line, how to do medical evacuations. And after that time period, we're set to go. So we blast off and we go to Canada. Things are pretty cool. We come home after a couple weeks, take two days rest, and then we're off again. And up until August 9th, we spend the whole summer in Montana fighting fires. In August 9th, we're here in Missoula, we're doing some project work, and we get a call from our dispatch center that there's a fire down in Great Basin National Park in Nevada. It's about 4,500 acres or so. It's in mixed terrain, rough terrain, perfect hotshot country, and so we blast down there. After about a day or so, we get on scene, we get an in-briefing, we get some information about the fire, and we go to work, and everything's going pretty well. We're sleeping in the dirt, we're hanging out with each other, we're working with each other, and we're helping to put this fire out. On August 13th, we wake up in the morning, it's 5.30, we hang out, drink some coffee, get a bite to eat, and then the crew blasts up the mountain. In about 45 minutes or so, we're in our little workspace. You know, the environment is steep, it's 7,000 feet, it's timbered, um, we're kind of doing our thing. Uh, we have a hotshot crew behind us, and then one that's bumped out ahead of us, and then there's a hotshot crew that's way out ahead of us working towards us. It's kind of the last little piece of line, so there's work to be done, but we're kind of closing in on basically the fire. Everything's going well, and sometime in the afternoon, we get a radio call that we need some hazard trees taken out above us, maybe three, 400 yards. So I'm hanging out, and Justin comes up with his saw partner, and then there's another two-person saw team that's just behind them. We make short conversation, we probably make fun of each other, just like we always do, and they head up the hill. At about 1600, a radio transmission comes across the radio that one of the firefighters has been struck by a tree. I immediately drop my line gear, I grab my EMT bag, I look to my partner and I'm off. I make hay as fast as I can. My legs are burning at seven, 9,000 feet. My lungs are burning, my heart's racing. But for some reason I got on the radio and I asked those guys, does he have a pulse and is he breathing? I didn't get a good response, so I asked them to start yelling because I didn't know exactly where they were. I'm jumping from rock to rock through brush, the smell of ash and smoke. I can't quite see him just yet, but then I make it on scene. 
Once I get to Justin, I drop to my knees to his torso and I assess the situation. Justin's not breathing and he doesn't have a pulse, so we initiate CPR. At that moment, I go numb, but I know that we have to get Justin help and we have to get him off the hill as fast as we can. There's a lot going on on the scene. There's additional medical personnel and EMTs and paramedics all coming on scene. There's an incident commander calling to the incident command post to get a helicopter coming towards us to get Justin off the hill because we're quite a ways up. There's people scrambling and the scene isn't chaotic but it's definitely busy all with the focus of getting Justin off the hill. So after about 50 minutes or so, we're ready to move Justin and the way we're going to do it is there's been two firefighters that came in off of basically a rope hooked to the bottom of the helicopter. We're going to hook Justin to that rope. They're going to lift him off the hill, take him down to an area where they can put him in the helicopter, and that's the way he's going to move. But just before we do that, there's a gut-wrenching conversation that comes about from a paramedic. He looks at all of us, and he says, all right, fellas, here's the deal. Since Justin's going to be at the bottom of that rope, we're not going to be able to do CPR on him. We're going to have to stop doing CPR until they can put him in the helicopter, which is a few minutes later down the hill. I kind of lost it, but I understood what was going on. So we move Justin. He gets attached to the bottom of the rope. They lift him, and away he goes. I can't believe what just happened. It's not supposed to happen to firefighters. It's not supposed to happen to anybody. But here I am, and here we are. So we take about 10 or 15 minutes and we start healing. We cry and we hug another and we talk as much as we can, but there's not many words to say. But we're there and I gotta get the crew off the hill. So eventually we move, we meet up with the rest of the crew, and we walk down the trucks. I get to the trucks and the first thing I do is walk right to Justin's gear and grab it. I pull it up to my chest and pretty much hug it like I would hug him. We hop in the trucks and make our way down the hill and the whole time I, I don't wanna believe what I think I already know. We get down to the bottom of the hill and we find that Justin has passed away. I often think if I could talk to Justin, what would I say? I'd tell him a lot of things. I'd tell him I miss him, and I love him, and I think of him every day, and sometimes ways that I don't want to think about him, but I do. I'd tell him that his family and friends, his girlfriend at the time, his mom and his dad, have become part of our tribe, and they help us heal, and I couldn't think of going forward without them. And then I'd share with him that story of the first day that I met him. When he walked into my office, he put that little can of maple syrup on my table, and he showed me his genuosity, his authenticity, and his character. And I'd let him know that it's those characteristics that help us move forward but not move on and heal with another and continue on down the line.
Thanks, Sean. Sean Fayella is the assistant superintendent of the Lolo Hotshots. To see a memorial to Justin, visit tellusomething.org and follow the link to the Lolo Hotshots tribute page for Justin. Thanks for listening to the Tell Us Something podcast. If you enjoy the stories you hear, please rate us on Apple Music or Stitcher. Leaving us a review and rating really helps get the podcast to more listeners, and we want to reach as many people as possible. Please also recommend the Tell Us Something podcast to one person who has never listened to it before. Thank you. We have two more stories in this episode. Before we get to them, I want to take a moment to thank our title sponsors, the Bookstore at the University of Montana, a local bookstore serving the students, faculty, and staff of the University of Montana, as well as the Missoula community, montanabookstore.com. Cabinetparts.com, the number one source for cabinet hardware since 1997. Anyone searching for the best kitchen cabinet hardware at a great price needs to go to cabinetparts.com. Cabinetparts.com combines knowledgeable hardware specialists with the best online shopping experience nationwide. Cabinetparts.com is the direct source for all of your cabinet hardware needs. The Good Food Store. The Good Food Store. Supporting Western Montana farmers and ranchers for almost 50 years, The Good Food Store supports the local folks creating their own beer, salsa, baked goods, ice cream, and more. Learn more at goodfoodstore.com. Logjam Presents. Headquartered in Missoula, Montana, Logjam Presents is an independent and privately owned live entertainment company. Logjam Presents is the exclusive operator and promoter of the Kettle House Amphitheater, the Wilma, the Top Hat Lounge, and Ogren Park. Logjam Presents has created a unique artist and concertgoer experience that is unmatched in the Northwest. Logjampresents.com All right, let's get back to the storytelling. Allison James' husband gains a pound and their friend Ryan loses a pound when Allison's husband accepts a donated kidney. Allison calls her story the closest match. Thanks for listening. We were driving from Missoula to Seattle. It was a beautiful day. It could have been any road trip, um, any four friends going to a show or driving to the coast. We were going on down the highway. It wasn't any road trip. Um, We were going to Seattle to a big hospital in downtown Seattle, Virginia Mason, so that my husband could get a new kidney. Uh, He was 41 years old. And we were with Ryan, the young guy who had offered to give Jason a kidney, and also um, Ryan's partner, Danny, who would be there to take care of him while he recovered. They all went to sleep. I was driving. We were in eastern Washington through the rolling hills, and I was just overcome with these waves of emotion. Everything that we had experienced in the last few months just the stress and the worry and the gratitude and the awe that this was even a thing that could happen. And I'm kind of on my own plane. Then ding, the gas indicator light goes on. And I realize that I've forgotten a critical detail. (laughs) I have the guy and the other guy and the other guy, but I forgot to get gas. So we had to backtrack. We turned around because we weren't within enough, you know, distance of any town. Uh, We had to backtrack to Ellensburg and got gas and carried on. A few months before my husband and I got married, he had been having some health problems 
was kind of a lot of things for a long time. And a very determined doctor finally figured out that his kidneys were failing. He was 30 years old, you know, we were living our lives and um, this started to make a lot of sense. So she looked at all of this and figured out that he had a birth defect and his kidneys had never really worked. And so we, you know, said, okay, well, like what now? And she said, well, now we wait and see how long your kidneys last and someday you're gonna need a kidney transplant. And you're like, oh, okay. And it was hard to imagine at that time, like what did that even look like? What, how would that happen? Um, so we went on and we lived our lives and we, <laughs> we got married and we bought a house and we got a Subaru and a dog. So it was, <laughs> we were living the Montana dream. Jason was a teacher at Capitol High School in Helena. He taught history. Uh, his students adored him. People would come up to us in town all the time and, you know, want to talk to him, kids, and, or parents sometimes too. He is a great storyteller, and so he made history really exciting and fun. Um, he's also a ham, and so he had a, a little girl's pink princess bicycle with a banana seat and tassels, and he would ride it around the hallways uh, and between classes. He would have the song of the day, which was usually something from the 70s that the kids wouldn't recognize. They'd have 30-second dance parties in class, and, and the kids all knew that he had these health problems. He was very open about it. He'd be like, fight me, fight me, but you can only hit me in the left kidney because that's the one that doesn't work. And um, so all this time, we were going to the doctor every six months. We'd go to the doctor, and they'd say, well, you, your kidneys are failing, and you're going to need a kidney transplant someday. And we were like, yeah, okay. And six months later, we'd go to the doctor and they'd say, your kidneys are failing and you're gonna need a transplant someday. And so I kind of thought maybe that's the way it would be. This went on for 11 years. Then one day we went to the doctor and they said, your kidneys are failing and you're gonna need a kidney transplant. And we were like, yeah. And uh, they said, no, like now, like this has, that, this has to happen. You're gonna get very sick you might have to go on dialysis, and we need to get this process started. So we got the process started. One of the things that you do is you get on the list, uh, the transplant list, and you've probably heard about this, but people wait a long time on the list, and they get sicker and sicker, and sometimes people die on the list. The list is people who have passed away and whose family has opted to donate organs and you have to wait for a genetic match so it can take a very long time. The other way that you can get a kidney is to ask for one which is really hard and we didn't know how to do that but we kind of stalled for a while and then we got a loving but firm nudge from some family members. We decided to write a letter we wrote a letter to family and friends and told them what ha was happening and that Jason needed a kidney and posted online and then we waited. And pretty soon we were overwhelmed with the response. People were calling 
the hospital, there's like a hotline you call and people were calling and calling and telling us like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I called. You have to have a matching blood type and then you go through a whole extensive screening process. And so in the end, there were four candidates who were matches, who made it through the screening process and were matches. My college roommate's brother's girlfriend, who Jason had never met. My mom and two former students of Jason's. Everybody had to show up on the same day, like at the same minute in all the places that they were and give a whole bunch of blood and then that blood was tested and they determined who would be the best match. They got everything back and they said like, okay, yeah, we, you know, we've processed all of these and, and this guy, this guy is a closer match than most siblings would be. And I'd never met him. This was one of Jason's students, you know, from a few years back. And so um, we took him out to dinner. I mean, what do you do? <laughs> so, <laughs> and that started the process. And, and he was all in from the very beginning. And the whole time we kept saying, you know, like, you can change your mind and you don't have to do this. And like, it's, it's okay. And he was like, no, we're doing this thing. So we went to Seattle and we went to this giant hospital on a Tuesday morning. It was very quiet and the streets of Seattle were empty and it was just getting light and we, you know, rolled into the hospital. Ryan and went in first and then about 45 minutes later, they came and called for Jason to come in and then we waited for a really long time. We had family and friends there and they had a screen on the on the wall in the waiting room and it each patient has a patient number for privacy and so there was a patient number and at one point Jason's patient number was there or I'm sorry Ryan's patient number was there at the top and it said surgery completed and then right underneath it was Jason's patient number and it said surgery in progress Hours and hours later we got called back Ryan was done first and uh, Danny and I went uh, to see him and the first thing he said was hi and then he said um, how's Jason doing and I said it, we heard that everything's going great and then and then after a while Jason was ready the first thing he said was did it did it happen already and I said yeah yeah it's done and then he said well how's Ryan doing and I said he's he's doing good after the anesthesia wore off Jason woke up feeling better than he had in his entire life. His cheeks were all rosy, his eyes were bright blue. He was doing 30 second dance parties with his nieces in his hospital room. And Ryan felt the worst that he had ever felt in his entire life. And I was running, the hospital rooms were, for whatever awful reason, were on the opposite ends of the hallway, the same hallway of this huge hospital. And I was running and dodging and, you know, the nurses are wondering who, the, who, who was this lady. And I just felt like if I could be there all the time for both of them, that everything was gonna be okay. And of course that was impossible for me to be there all the time for both of them. And really everything already was okay. And everything went great. They both recovered. The next year we went to Ryan's graduation. He got a degree in history from the University of Montana. Just this last May, Ryan joined us to celebrate uh, when Jason got his doctorate in education from the University of Montana. 
that was a degree program that Jason had started not knowing if he would ever finish because he might get really sick. But he didn't get, well, he did, but then he got better. We continue to be very close, you know, closer than most siblings would be. And now we're family. Thanks. Thanks, Allison. Allison James is a lifelong and devoted Montanan. She lives in Missoula, where she spends a lot of time working on conservation and reproductive rights. She loves hiking, good beer, and adventure with family and friends. She has mixed feelings about water chestnuts, ebooks, and Christmas. In our final story, Anna Haslin navigates the dating world and has some surprising experiences as a deaf woman dating a hearing man. Anna calls her story hopeless romantic. Note that Anna is profoundly deaf. Her story is voiced by an interpreter. Thanks for listening. So about two years ago, me and my best friend Erica, um, she's hearing, obviously I'm deaf, we met in school about 11 years ago. We decided to go out to a bar. It was the Sunrise Saloon. Just wanted to have some fun, have a couple drinks, do some dancing, you know, some of that country line dancing. And we went in the bar, we walk in, we sit down, we put in an order for drinks, and Erica knew that my favorite drink was a gin and tonic. And then she had her own favorite drink too. So we were just laughing and having so much fun, and I looked over, and oh my gosh, I fell in love with the most beautiful man I've ever seen. (laughs) Blue eyes, blonde hair, sweet, kind, strong, He came up to me and he said, hello, my name's Phil. And I said, hello, I'm Anna. This is my best friend, Erica. And so understand now that Phil, and Erica had to interpret for us because Phil was hearing. He didn't know any sign language. Even though Phil said, we can communicate ourselves. We don't need to have Erica here with us. (laughs) And I thought, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. I had butterflies in my stomach and everything. So we chatted and chatted. We wrote notes back and forth. We used texting apps to talk, and it went on for about two hours. It was a great time. And then when we parted, we said, oh, we'll keep in contact. And Erica said, oh my gosh, how did it go? How was it? And I said, holy cow, he is so hot. Oh my gosh, it was the best. So when we got, we contacted again, and we dated a few times. And what was really a small world is that Phil's parents also knew my mom. And I thought, well, hey, that's pretty cool. So we dated for a total of about six months. And it really seemed like he accepted who I was, didn't care that I was deaf, and that I used sign to communicate. And I felt like we were just really following in love. And it was one of the best relationship experiences I've had in my entire life. It was great. But then one day, Phil got a hold of me and he said, I'd like to talk with you in person. I want to meet up with you this morning. And I said, oh, that'd be great. I'd love it. So then it was the next morning. I got all ready. I was excited to see Phil. I walk out the door. And Phil, he comes up. And it's like I can imagine this really sad, somber music playing. And he walks over. He has this thing in his hand. And he had an ASL book that I had given him um, to learn sign language. And then he also had a letter for me. And I said, what is this letter? He hands me the stuff. And he says, Anna, you need to wait until I leave to read that letter. He gave me a kiss on the forehead, a hug, and he took off. 
I mean, he was only there for like five minutes. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> you just were here for five minutes and you left. What happened? Did that really just happen? So I grabbed my coffee. I went out into the lawn. I sat down. I thought, this letter, you know, it looks so fancy and professional. So I'm looking at it, and it says, Sweetheart Anna, you're so sweet. I think you're just a wonderful person. And I know you've had some struggles, but I really think you're not the right person for me. And I have so much important work to do, so I'm sorry I wasted your six months, and I hope we can stay friends. <laughs> I felt like, like I just was like interviewing for The Bachelor or something. It was ridiculous. But I folded it up, I put it in my pocket, and I was so angry and so confused, I just wanted to kill him. I mean, I just wanted to ball him out. But I figured, no, I'll just move on. So that letter, however, I kept for a whole year. And I thought, you know, maybe he'd call me up and he'd want to get back together with me and I'd show him this note and say, are you kidding me? Absolutely not. But obviously he wasn't strong enough to, you know, face me and talk to me in person, so forget it. So about a year later, I went into a restaurant, and I was just fuming, and I saw him. And I really thought, you can't actually kill a person, but I decided I would kill them with kindness. <laughs> so I went up and gave him a hug, and I said, hi, it's nice to see you. And when we hugged, I got all those feelings again from back when, and I felt all woozy and soft, and, and then I thought about that letter. Um, no, I'm moving on. So forget it. I said, goodbye, Phil. And then it was like the new me. I was to start over. So then it was a, a few months ago, there was this organization called Seek the World, and it's deaf individuals that go around and interview other deaf individuals about their life stories and experiences and all kinds of stuff like that. So it's called Seek the World, it's on Facebook, but anyway, they do a bunch of interviewing, and they came in, and they interviewed me, and again, I was with Erica, just to make sure all the communication went well. The guy who did the interviewing, his name was Clive, and he was with Seek the World. So we have this interview, and it finishes, and Clive comes over and says, hey, you know what, I'd like to introduce you to my cousin. He's deaf, you guys would really get along. And I thought, sure, that's fine. So. We introduced ourselves, his name is Jarlin, and oh my gosh, he with beautiful blue eyes, great personality, um, really looked the same as the other guy. So, <laughs> I decided to give him a tour of Missoula, and we hung out for a couple days. And after those two days, he left, he didn't live here in town. So on Facebook, I got this message, and it was Jarlin saying, um, I'm not sure you're the right first person for me, but would you mind giving me the phone number of your best friend, Erica? What the hell is this? Is this really happening again? But what was funny is that at the same time, Erica was sitting right there next to me and when she saw it, I showed it to her on my phone and Erica said, what? And, cause she'd actually never met the guy before, he'd seen her, but it was ridiculous. So she looked up at me and she said, no, absolutely not. And I said, no, absolutely not. And that was it. And I'm moving on. So now, 
my whole perspective in life with this dating world is that it, it doesn't matter if you're hearing or deaf. You really need to date a person that is gonna be loyal and cherish and respectful and love me for who I am. They could be deaf, blind, any color of skin, it doesn't matter. It's everything that's in your heart. So now at nighttime, I'm just gonna go home and watch some romantic comedy with my sweet little four-year-old chihuahua dude. And he will love me back, always. He has a little heart on his nose, and he gives me kisses every night. Good night. Thanks, Anna. Anna Haslin is from Seattle, Washington. She is a very free spirit and a very kind person. She loves being a dancer. To see her Seek the World video, visit tellussomething.org. Thanks to Bonnie Curian for voicing Anna's story. Thanks for listening to our stories today. Tell Us Something is proud to be fiscally sponsored by Missoula Community Foundation, a 501c3 organization. Missoula Community Foundation has been providing leadership to Missoula nonprofits and inspiring long-term philanthropy in Missoula since 2007. MissoulaCommunityFoundation.org Thanks to all of our sponsors. Fact and Fiction, where books, authors, ideas, and readers interact. FactandFictionBooks.com Missoula Broadcasting Company, locally owned and operating four stations, The Trail 103.3, Missoula's Quality Rock, and part of our unique Western Montana community. Featuring local DJs who love Missoula and know their music. Jack FM 105.9, playing what they want. U 104.5 FM, your at-work listening station. And ESPN 102.9, focusing on city, state, and regional sports, giving exposure and insight to teams and athletes in and around Western Montana. Learn more at MissoulaBroadcasting.com. Enlighten Lab Float Center. Enlighten Lab is a spa featuring sensory deprivation or floating as a wellness therapy. Unplug, reset, and recharge in their state-of-the-art float tanks. Or sweat it out in their infrared sauna. Learn more at EnlightenLab.com. That's E-N-L-Y-T-E-N-L-A-B.com. Gecko Designs. Visit the Gecko Designs team on North Higgins in Missoula or online at geckodesigns.com. Thanks to Cash for Drunkers who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at cashfordrunkardmusic.com. Podcast production by me, Mark Moss. Thank you to everyone who attends the live events, those of you who download the podcasts, and most especially to the storytellers, Mignon Hess, Sean Fiella, Allison James, and Anna Hasland. The next live Tell Us Something event is March 18th at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. The theme is Stranger in a Strange Land. We are taking story pitches for that show right now. To pitch your story, call 406-203-4683. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to the Tell Us Something podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can stream all the stories ever told on the Tell Us Something stage for free and learn about upcoming events and ticket sales at tellussomething.org. You can also learn about our new storytelling workshops and schedule a workshop for yourself. Go to tellussomething.org to learn more. Thank you.